All right, so I've always been fascinated by lightning. Um, you know, whenever I see a massive electrical uh, bolt kind of flash across the sky, a spark of electricity, like many of you, I'm absolutely amazed. Now, for some of you who've recently moved to Florida, well, first of all, welcome to Florida, but here's what you need to know, that our state gets more thunderstorms than any other state in America. And according to a report from Bay News 9 out of Tampa, Florida is the lightning capital of the nation in terms of strike density per square mile. Okay, so our state, Florida, more thunderstorms than any other state, our state, Florida, lightning capital of the nation. So I just want to say welcome to the Sunshine State. We're glad you're here. Before you become too concerned about, man, am I ever going to get struck by lightning, let me give you some statistics. According to the National Lightning Safety Council, the odds of getting struck by lightning in a given year is one in over 1.4 million. <laughs> okay, and so one chance in well over a million that you're going to get struck by lightning in any given year. Okay, so what's, what's the likelihood? Not much at all. But if you live to 80 years old, the odds of getting struck in your lifetime are only one in a little over 18,000. So what's the remedy? Just die before you're 80. You have nothing to worry about. No, I'm kidding, kidding. Those of you in your late 70s, you know you're just like, I'm not laughing right now, right? <laughs> that reminds me of the joke. Um, when I die, I wanna go like grandpa, quietly in my sleep, not screaming like the passengers in the car he was driving. <laughs> You'll get it in a moment, it's coming. Back on track, lightning. All right, so you say, why in the world, pastor, are you talking about lightning this morning? Well, here's why. Because John chapter eight is like a powerful lightning storm. In this chapter, Jesus is in a stormy debate with the religious leaders during which he makes some awesome claims about himself. And these claims that Jesus makes in John chapter eight, man, they're like lightning bolts of truth. They're powerful and they're illuminating. But here's the problem. After Jesus, right, makes a amazing claim about who he is, those claims are countered by the religious leaders in the crowd who throw out their own lightning bolts, not of truth, but lies meant to demean and dishonor the Lord. But then here's what you need to know. Jesus strikes back again in John chapter eight and he lights up the sky with even more illuminating, spectacular flashes than before. So here's what's striking to me as I've studied for hours in John chapter eight. What's striking to me is that Jesus never lets up. He will not allow lies to win the day. He wants truth to win the debate, the, 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 the day. And as the debate continues, what, his, what he does is he continues to make these claims that flash brighter and brighter regarding where he came from, what he intended to do, and who he was, who he really was. All right, so what's the setting of John chapter eight? The setting is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching after the Feast of Tabernacles, after the Feast of Booths. As always, there's a crowd gathered because whenever Jesus spoke, whenever Jesus taught, there's always a crowd. So a crowd is gathered and they're listening to every word that Jesus is saying. But the problem, as I've already told you, is that the religious leaders are combating with the Lord. The good news is that while Jesus is teaching, you can look at it, we left off on verse 30 two weeks ago, but the good news is that as he was teaching, it says at the end of verse 30 that many believed in him. And so what you have now, very important you get this so you understand how to interpret John 8 correctly, what you have now is a mixed crowd. You have a mixed crowd on the Temple Mount made, of, made up of believers 
and unbelievers. What's sad is that those unbelievers who are rejecting Jesus from their heart as the Messiah, their hearts are getting harder and harder and harder. So, after many in the crowd placed their faith in Jesus, he said to them in verse 31, if right now, if you're looking at John chapter 8, 31, can you say amen so I know you're there? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All right, so we are so happy that many in the crowd 2,000 years ago on the Temple Mount after the Feast of Booths, as Jesus is teaching, we are so glad that many of them believed in Jesus, placed their faith in Jesus. But now in verse 31, the Lord wanted them to demonstrate their faith by following him, by being his disciples. I really love what Chuck Swindoll had to say about this passage He said that Jesus assured them, the new believers, that belief was not the end of something as though they arrived. Belief is a beginning, a birth after which growth must follow. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear me. After we get saved, we need to grow. We need to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how is that done? Jesus told us in verse 31. He said, if, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That leads us to our first point, if you're taking notes today, and that is, if we are gonna grow as Christ's disciples, we must abide in his word. Abide in his word. What does the word abide mean? It means to continue in. All right, so what are we supposed to continue in? We are supposed to continue in God's word. Abide in, continue in God's word. All right, time to apply it. Perfect opportunity for me to ask you, how you doing? How are you doing in your personal Bible reading? How are you doing in your personal Bible study? How are you doing in your personal meditation on or in the Word? Now, some of you may be thinking right now, and you might as well be honest because God sees right into all of our hearts. The worst thing we can ever do is try to be a hypocrite before God. Listen, he sees it. He's got x-ray vision. He knows our hearts. Can we just be real? Can we just be genuine? Can we just be honest before the Lord, please? And so if you're struggling, guess what? Good news. We have some great tools to recommend to you. And so Blue Letter Bible, blueletterbible.org. I've been using this website for over 20 years. It's as solid as it gets. You know why? Because the people who contribute to Blue Letter Bible uh, website, they actually believe that this is God's word. And they're super uh, um, um, solid theologians and Bible scholars, and there's so many of them. And so um, I know Blue Letter Bible isn't the most user-friendly website, but here's the thing. There is a video that you can watch at the site that'll take you through how to use it. And so I highly recommend Blue Letter Bible. I also highly recommend EnduringWord.com. So you have BlueLetterBible.org, but now EnduringWord.com. That is Pastor David Guzik's website. Fellow Calvary Chapel pastor, I think he's gone through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's all there. It's all free (laughs) right there at his website. And uh, God has been using Pastor Guzik uh, in a powerful way for many, many years. You know about gotquestions.org. So I got any kind of question about the Bible, any kind of question about theology, any kind of question about Christianity, about denominations. I, I went in there the other day and I, I typed in a certain mainline denomination. Everybody look at me, mainline Christian denomination. Because I was curious to find out what do these people teach, what do they believe? And here's what I found out on gotquestions.org. 
is that this mainline Christian denomination, they marry homosexual couples. They ordain homosexual clergy. Okay? Ladies and gentlemen, what have they done? They have abandoned the word of God. Because it's super clear in the Bible that any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality and it's a sin against the Lord. Okay, you, now, here's the problem why I didn't hear more amens. The problem is we're allowing our culture to influence us instead of the word of God to influence us. And you know what we do? Do you know what we do? Here's what we do. We stand in judgment of the Bible. Who in the world are we to stand in judgment of the Bible? There are schools right now that are reviewing the Bible to see if they can keep it in their library, whether or not it's offensive or not. Who are we to stand in judgment of God's word? Who are we? There's people out there that say the the God of the Old Testament, he's got to be made up because he's such a cruel person. Who are we to stand in judgment of God? Listen, you know, you got a problem with a God who takes out the Canaanites? Here's what you need to remind yourself. God brought us into this world. He can take us out whenever he wants to. It's called judgment. It's called judgment. So we need to stop standing over God and over his word and stop thinking that we're smarter than God. We're not. It's called pride, ladies and gentlemen, and that's why many people are blind to the Lord. We gotta come to a place of humility before the true God. Now, the psalmist declared this. Oh, by the way, crossexamine.org, Pastor uh, Frank Turek uh, was here a month ago for apologetics. But here's what the psalmist said. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, it's not a drudgery, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now what's the result of that? Here's the result. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. There's the true prosperity gospel in the word of God as God defines prosperity. So if you want to prosper, meditate in God's word. Why in the world are you allowing the voices of the culture to be louder than the voice of the word of God? No wonder you've left a biblical worldview for a secular humanistic worldview. It's time to switch it. It's time to get into God's word. It's time to meditate in God's word. And that's when God will prosper us. And so abiding in the word is the key to true prosperity, but it's also the key to sanctification. So right now it's really important, so no one's confused, that I differentiate between three very important theological words. All right, so you have the word justification. Have you guys ever heard me say, are you saved? Do you know if you're truly saved? If you heard that, me say that, say amen. Yeah. I'm always talking about line number one. 100% of the time, I'm always talking about line number one. And if you don't understand line number one, please go home and read Romans, okay? And so justification, what does that mean? It means to be declared righteous by God. So when a person turns from their sin and turns to Jesus Christ, understanding that he died in their place, paid for their sin, and rose again, when they turn to Jesus in true repentance and faith, Receiving him as the savior and lord of their lives. Guess what? God says, I declare you righteous. Why? Because they're so righteous? Because I'm so righteous? No, not self-righteousness. Christ's righteousness. He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then when he looks down on us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of the savior, and that's the only reason we're accepted by a holy God. And so every time I say, are you saved? I'm always talking about line one. And those who are truly saved, you can say, I have been saved from the, what a sin? But any least sin. If you're justified by the way, that never changes. Once you're a child of God, you're a child of God. 
Please read Romans. Please read Romans chapter eight. All right, now sanctification is for Christians. And it's a lifelong process. Justification happens like that. Boom, you're justified, right? But sanctification, all your life long, all my life long, I am, we are being saved from the what of sin? Power of sin. What does sanctification mean? It means to be set apart, to be made holy. It's talking about how to grow, how to be set free. And so the stronger and the more The more we abide in God's word, the stronger our grip is on the word of God, the weaker the grip of sin is on our life. And then we're all looking forward to, Christians, right? Glorification. (laughs) In the future, I will be saved from the what of sin? Presence of sin. How many of you guys can't wait till you get a new body and live in a new heaven and a new earth? That's gonna be absolutely amazing. Why, because we're so good? Nope. Because God's so good. And so, if you've been justified by faith, line number one, you're saved, nothing can change that. But Christian, here's here's what I wanna say today. It's time for sanctification. Why? So you can continually be set free from the power of sin in your life. That's what honors God. Regarding this, Warren Wearsby said, how can slaves of sin be set free? Only by the Son. How does he do it? Through the power of his word. And so when Jesus was praying for his disciples uh, in the upper room, high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. We're in John 8. We'll get to John 17 in about five years. Okay, but when he's praying for his disciples, here's, here's what he says. Father, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, all right? And so abiding in God's word will sanctify us. Continuing in God's word will set us apart. It will make us holy. It will cause us to grow. It will set us free. You say, how do you know for sure? Here's how I know for sure. Look again at Jesus' words. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Here it is. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is a promise of God. And you need to stand on it. You need to take it to the bank. And so, can you honestly say, I am free from the bondage of sin in my life? I'm not asking if you're perfect. I'm asking if you're free. That's the question. Are you free? Because if the sun sets you free, man, you're free indeed. So are you free from the chains of any specific sin? If you say no, God sees my heart, I can't fake him out, so no, he knows, I know, I'm in bond, I'm struggling with something. So, okay, so listen to me. The first question you should always ask yourself is this. Am I truly saved? Have I truly been born again? Converted? Justified? Because the problem may be that the Holy Spirit does not live inside of you, therefore you do not have supernatural power to overcome sin in your life. And here's what I know, that if you try to overcome sin by your own willpower and your own strength, the devil's gonna eat your lunch. You need the power of God in order to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. So have you truly been saved? If you have any doubts about your salvation, please go to our Knowing Christ page. The gospel is there. The gospel has power, supernatural power from the Lord. And so, man, make sure or come up after the end of the service and talk to one of our ministry team members. We would love to lead you to Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I know it's not politically correct, but here's the bottom line. There's two types of people in the world, saved and lost. And listen, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, if you know you're saved, the second question you should ask yourself if you're struggling with this sin in your life is, am I being sanctified? As a Christian, am I being sanctified? Am I being set apart? Am I being um, um, made holy? Am I growing? Am I being set free? 
That's the question you need to ask. And here's what I, I believe with all my heart because I believe that the Bible teaches this. All who are justified will experience some level of sanctification in their life. How do you know? Because if any man or woman is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God cannot come inside of somebody and there not be any change in that person's life. There's gonna be a change. There's gonna be fruit. And so if you're not growing at the rate you should be, then it's time to get more serious about abiding in God's word. You say, should I read it? Yes. Should I study it? Yes. Should I meditate on it? Yes, every single day. But never forget this. If you're a true disciple, the word will bear fruit. It will go from your head to your heart to your feet, and you will live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so after Jesus talks about freedom, the unbelievers, remember this is a mixed crowd, believers and unbelievers, so the unbelievers, most likely the religious leaders, say to him now in verse 33, they answered him, because they're offended, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, we will be, or you will become free. Okay, so if we were there, okay, just imagine you go back 2,000 years ago, there you are in your robe and your sandals, right? You're on the Temple Mount, and you heard the religious leaders tell Jesus this. What are you talking about, Jesus? We're not enslaved to, we've never been enslaved to anybody. You know, maybe you would raise your hand and say, excuse me, sir, you've never been enslaved to anyone? Could you turn around and look up? Okay, so everybody look at the screen, top right part of the screen. If you see a big fortress with four towers, please say amen. amen. Okay, you know who occupied that fortress? The Romans. You know whose soldiers are on top of that fortress? Roman soldiers. You know why? Because first century AD, Israel was under the iron fist of Rome. We've never been enslaved to anybody. Excuse me, sir. Um, look up, whose soldiers are those looking down at you right now? Now here's what you need to know though. These guys were not dumb. They were highly educated. So I think personally, and you know, we can have different opinions about this kind of stuff, but I think personally, they, if we said that to them, they would say, we're not talking about physical bondage. We're talking about religious bondage. They'd probably say, you look up. You see that temple? If you see the big, beautiful building in the middle, please say amen. You see that temple? You see, we are free religiously. We have our temple. We have our law. We have our oral tradition. We're good people. Oh man, Jesus was there to set the record straight that they weren't good people. You gotta get this right here. They, like you and I, are sinners in need of a savior. And remember how I said there's two types of people in the world, saved and lost? These lost people, until they admit they're sinners in need of a savior, they're gonna remain lost. And so, look at verse 34. It says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, okay, so he's talking to the religious guys who think, I'm okay, we're okay, we're the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus is like, you're not okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Lightning strike, right? What a powerful lightning bolt of truth. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So what is Jesus saying? That even though you're religious, you're still sinners. You're in bondage to sin. What do you need? More religion? No. What you need is the Son of God. 
You need the Son of God to forgive you. You need the Son of God to empower you. You need the Son of God to set you free. Religion can't do that. But here's the thing. Jesus has x-ray vision. He can see in their hearts. He knows they're still rejecting him. So what does he do? More lightning bolts of truth. Look at verse 37. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. You may want to underline that in your Bibles. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you need to know that crowd on the Temple Mount when Jesus said, you, the religious leaders, you seek to kill me. There was a gasp in the crowd. And so, here's what I want to do. I want to reread that, and when I say kill me, I want you guys to gasp. You ready for some interaction, interactive preaching here? All right, so here we go. Can you see it? Temple Mount, Jesus is teaching, debate with the religious leaders. He says in verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Very good. Welcome to making ourselves alive to the Bible that's already alive. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Uh Uh-oh, it's getting stormy. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, please underline Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. It was, it was a little softer because some of, you guys, some of you guys missed it, right? So stay with me here. Stay in the interaction. You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your, that your father did. Okay, stop right there. I had you underline offspring of Abraham in verse 37 and children of Abraham in verse 39 because there's an important distinction between the two. The Greek word for offspring in verse 37 is sperma. In the context, it refers to just a physical descendant. But the Greek word for children in verse 39 is technon, and that's talking about in the context a spiritual son or daughter. You see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, you guys may be physical descendants of Abraham, but you certainly are not his spiritual children. Because if Abraham was your spiritual father, you would be more like him. Why? Because like father, like son. But since you want to Kill me. Yes. (laughs) Since you want to kill me, you have another father. Woo. Now, we're about to get another lightning bolt here. This time, not from Jesus. This time, it's a strike from the religious leaders. And ladies and gentlemen, this is low as you can go. I just want you to focus in on the second half of verse 41. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Oh my goodness, talk about a low blow. What were they inferring by the words, we were not born of sexual immorality? They were were, um, inferring, you, Jesus, were born of sexual immorality. We heard the rumors about your mother, Jesus, how she got pregnant out of wedlock. We're not buying this virgin birth stuff. That's impossible. Your mother committed sexual immorality out of wedlock with whoever and you are the result. Now, you got to admire Jesus here as the all-powerful son of God. He could have melted them on the spot. It's called judgment. God can do that, you remember? God brought us in the world. God can take us out. Jesus could have judged them right there. He could have said, 
you talking about my mama? <laughs> Zap! <laughs> Straight to hell. He could have done that. And so, man, you gotta admire Jesus and his restraint here. Look at verse 42. And by the way, before I, before I go any further, when Pastor Reagan asks us to raise our hands during worship, that's a very precious moment. You know why? Because, listen, they were demeaning and dishonoring and trying to demote in the eyes of the crowd the Lord Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise, our honor, our adoration. So let's worship him for who he is. Take it seriously. You might as well get used to it now because we're gonna be doing it for a billion, billion, billion years. Where was I? Okay. Jesus said to them in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Why is Jesus being so blunt here? It's very simple. Because apart from conviction, there will be no conversion. You know, these guys, they needed to get to the place of the people in verse 30, right? Here, here's what needed to happen. They needed to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They needed to understand, yes, Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter proclaims in Matthew chapter 16. Oh, man, Lord, <sighs> so sorry. And they needed to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. What did they need? They needed true conversion. And that doesn't happen, ladies and gentlemen, apart from being convicted over your sins. Look at verse, and then God could be their father. Look at verse 46. He says, and by the way, um, a lot of these guys, these religious leaders, they believe Jesus was just a, another sinner from Galilee. So he says in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And he's talking to religious people. I've said it a thousand times. Religion cannot save. Only Christ can save. People think they're saved because they go to church. My car goes to church. My car is not saved. <laughs> my car is cool. I got a Mustang. It's awesome. It's my third Mustang. I just like them a lot. And for those of you Chevy lovers who are saying, found on road dead, you need to repent of your sin. <laughs> I actually grew up um, that's why I love, I love 11 o'clock because we can just keep going on and on. <laughs> I actually grew up and my neighbor had a 1965 Mustang convertible with pony interior and I committed the uh, sin, I broke the commandment of thou shalt not covet for a lot of years and, and so now, anyway, what in the world am I doing? Okay, so... <laughs> Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? And you know what? None of them could. You know why? Because Jesus never sinned. Look at what Paul will say later in the New Testament. He says, for our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin. Here it is. Who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. Why? So that in him, 
we might become the righteousness of God. All right, so here's the gospel. This is a precious five minutes here because listen, listen, this message that I'm gonna say in the next five or so minutes, for some reason, less and less people are preaching it. They'd rather preach superficial Uh, topical messages that barely scratch the surface of the word of God to make people feel good. No. No, 10,000 times no. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. (laughs) Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Okay, so that's what we do here. We preach the word. And so, so please, hear the word of God, hear the gospel right here. If you're listening, say amen. amen. All right, so God is a just judge. And he said that all sin has to be paid for. You say, I don't like that. It doesn't matter what we like. It's truth. God is just. God is holy. He is a just judge. What would we think about the judge, right? When someone is a criminal and they committed a heinous crime, What judge ever sits there behind the bench and winks and says, hey, get out of here? We would be enraged. Why? It's the judge's job to make sure that that crime is paid for. You do the crime, you do the what? Time. God's a just judge. The wages of sin is what? Death. That means when we close our eyes, if our sins are not forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, guess what? We're not annihilated. We're separated from God forever. God is a just judge, but God is also a merciful father. He is not willing that any should perish. God loves the entire world. So how in the world do we reconcile these two things? And not only is God just, and not only is God merciful, he's also immutable. That means he cannot, he does not change. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, he will always be fully just and he will always be fully merciful. How in the world does he reconcile this? Here's how. He sends his son and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ left um, eternity, the eternal son of God. He entered time and space through a virgin's womb. He lived a perfect life, never sinned one time. And then he willingly went to the cross. He allowed himself to be horrifically tortured by Roman soldiers. He suffered, and while he was hanging on that cross, half naked between heaven and earth, what did he do? Here's what happened. God, the Father, made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is anybody grateful for that today? Yeah. And so when it says that he became sin who knew no sin, Jesus was not a sinner. What is that referring to? He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid the death penalty that you and I should have paid. He did it in our place. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave, victorious over Satan, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell. That's what our hero did for us. And so what's left? If, everybody please say if. If somebody turns to Christ in genuine repentance and faith, receiving him as the savior and Lord of their life. Guess what? God takes away their sin and clothes them in Christ's righteousness so that when God sees that person, he doesn't see that person's sin, he sees the savior's righteousness. That's the only way we're accepted by a holy God. The only way. And so how does God reconcile his justice and his mercy? He did it at the cross. He is just, sin was paid for by Christ, and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, Romans 3, 26. That's the gospel. Have you turned to Christ? And I don't know why, guys, you gotta pray, because that message is not being preached as much as it used to back in the days of Billy Graham. And so what do you have? You have churches that are like country clubs. And it's all about me. And I'm the center of, my wor- of, of the world. Everything revolves around me. Tell me a message that makes me feel good. No, that's not Christianity. Now, look at verse 48. 
the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Again, you have an opportunity to worship the Lord on Sunday morning? Man, we need to honor the Lord because these people are dishonoring the Lord. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The word keeps carries the idea of observance. If you have the NIV, it says whoever obeys my word. If you have the NASB, it says whoever follows my word. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, pastor, please, time out. Why did Jesus say if anyone keeps, obeys, follows my word, he will never see death? Pastor, I thought we were saved by faith alone. And I would say that's a great question. So let me let the great reformer, Martin Luther, answer your question. Here it is. He said this, we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves us is never alone. What did Luther mean by that statement? He meant that true faith is always demonstrated by fruit. The fruit of obeying, following, keeping the word of God. And so if you're still confused, listen to the word of God. Before I quote it, let me just say, you go to our website, you go to our statement of faith, you'll see salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from meritorious works. You say, where do you get that? If you're listening, say amen. amen. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But don't forget verse 10. Christian, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. And so if we're truly saved, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, if you're saved, it will show. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay, so look at verse 51 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. For those of you who are truly saved, here's what's gonna happen someday, unless the Lord comes back first. Here's what's gonna happen. You are gonna close your eyes in this life, and you're gonna open your eyes in the next. And it's gonna be absolutely glorious. Your body will die but the true you, the inner you, will not see death. You're just gonna change addresses. I like what D.L. Moody said. Someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement and into a house that's immortal a body that death can't touch, that sin can't taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Yes, amen. If you don't know who D.L. Moody was, an amazing evangelist back in the 19th century, was not educated. I don't even think he graduated from high school. He used terrible English grammar, but God's power was on that man, and millions came to Christ through his ministry. Now, he was getting close to death. And on his deathbed, here's what he said, quote, I see earth receding, heaven is approaching, 
God is calling me. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It's glorious. God is calling me and I must go. Mama, you've been a good wife. No pain, no valley. It's bliss. And he died. I know a friend of mine whose mom was in hospice and he got the call, your mom is gone. He went to the hospice, he talked to the nurse. She said, I was walking by your mother's door and I looked in the glass window and she literally sat up in bed with her arms out and then she laid down and she was gone. A gentleman last night wheeled up in the wheelchair just last night and I went and talked to him. I haven't seen him since before COVID and he almost died. And he said to me as he sat in the wheelchair last night, he said, I was very close and I saw heaven. But Jesus said, I'm not ready for you yet. And he began to weep. Right there, last night. You say, you really believe D.L. Moody saw earth receding and heaven approaching? You really believe that guy saw heaven? Yes! A thousand percent yes, ladies and gentlemen. I was hanging out in Pastor Matt's office in between services and I walked by. He always keeps his Bible open and I just looked down and guess what passage was right there, opened. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. God's confirming what I'm saying to you. If you're not ready for death, you need to know this, that the secular humanistic educational institutions in America that say when you take your last breath, you're dead and you're done, they're not true. There is another life. Are you ready for it? It's coming. You need to ask yourself that question. Am I ready? Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, they'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And yes, they're yelling at Jesus right now. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. All right, for those of you who are new to the Bible, Jesus, Go back 2,000 years, Abraham. Jesus, go back 1,000 years, David. Go back 1,500 years, Moses. Go back 2,000 years, Abraham. And Jesus says, he saw my day and was glad. Now scholars debate about what does he mean um, when he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Okay, so some believe that, G that Jesus was talking about Abrahamic covenant, Gen um, Genesis 12 through 15, that when God promised Abraham that through you, all the nations of the earth, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that when Abraham believed that promise by faith, he saw Jesus' day by faith. Okay. Other, people, other scholars say, no, 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 it was when he died. Abraham closed his eyes in this life and opened them in the next. He saw Christ, the son of the living God. He saw Jesus' day. Okay, you know, here's, here's the truth. We're not sure what Jesus meant <laughs> when he said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. We just know it happened. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest lightning bolt of all. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, shout the next two words. Ego, emi. Now, what passage of scripture did Jesus refer to? Exodus 3, 
the account of the burning bush. You remember, Joseph, um, Joseph, um, Moses sees the bush and it's burning, right? And God's talking to Moses. Take your shoes off, this ground is holy ground. And then as they're talking, Moses says to God, he says, all right, if I go to the children of Israel and I say that the God of your fathers has sent me to deliver you from Egypt, and they say, what's his name? What do I tell him? And God replied right here. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. Shout it out, next two words. Has sent me to you. In the Greek Septuagint, okay? So Jesus, go back 200 years, 200 years BC, you have a group of 70 or 72 or so Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, and they translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. When they come to Exodus 3.14, ego emi has sent me to you. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no ambiguity about this. In John 8, 58, Jesus Christ claimed to be the very God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And it's the great, greatest lightning bolt of truth ever spoken by anyone at any time. What was he saying? He was saying, I am God incarnate. I am I am the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign one. I am the uncaused cause of the universe. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I am the self-existent one. I am the infinite one, the immutable one, the transcendent one. I am God in the flesh. That's our Christ. That's Jesus. And the Jesus of the so-called Christian cults, they deny that. They deny the eternality of the Christ and they are teaching a different Christ and that Christ cannot save you. And this is why I so strongly preach the Trinity to you guys. Because it's true, there's one God, please say one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We get that through the progressive revelation of the New Testament. All right, so how did these guys respond to Jesus? Pure rage. Last verse. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so according to Leviticus 24, 16, if you blaspheme God's name under the Old Testament law, you die by stoning That's why they're picking up stones. The religious leaders knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. And as they're shouting and yelling, probably tearing their clothes and throwing dirt and screaming, Jesus, supernaturally, I believe, slips away, blends in, and he's gone. Why? Because it's not time for him to die yet. That's six months from now. And so that's John chapter eight.